Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors. Ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. My guest today is Lucia Martinez Valdivia, assistant professor at Reed College in Oregon. Some of you may know her as the professor whose humanities lecture was effectively canceled by student protesters who didn't let her speak. That incident was covered by The Atlantic, The Economist, and The Washington Post, among others. She also talked about that experience at Heterodox Academy's first conference, and you can find that talk on YouTube by searching for Heterodox, a view from the Academy. Today, however, I'll be talking to Lucia about how to use and misuse the concept of identity. We'll be talking about how people have multiple identities that go beyond what colleges typically ask you to focus on, and we're going to discuss how the identity of student or learner can unify the students on a college campus. Hi, Lucia. Hi, Chris. I'd like to start by talking about the humanity sequence before we jump into the conversation about diversity. Some of our non-U.S. listeners, and maybe even some of our American listeners, might not know what humanity sequences are. Yeah, of course. Um, and first, thank you so much for having me um, on the half hour of heterodoxy. I'm really um, pleased to be able to talk with you about this. Um, so, um, a little bit of background for the uninitiated. Humanities 110, or um, we just tend to call it Hume 110 on Reed's campus, is the required course for all incoming first-year students. It's a year-long course um, requiring about six hours of classroom time every week. Of those six hours, three are in lectures, which the first-year class attends, at least in theory, as a whole. So this means that in addition to the shared reading experience, the syllabus, the assigned readings, they're getting a shared experience by listening to the same set of lectures delivered by the 25 faculty who teach in the course. And our faculty are pulled from departments specializing in all the humanistic disciplines taught at Reed, including the modern languages and literatures, political science, history, art, classics, philosophy, religion, you get the idea. Um, so that in any given semester, you might hear a political scientist lecture on the Apadana complex in ancient Persia, or an early modernist from the French department interpreting the construction of gender in Medea, or an art theorist's take on book 10 of Plato's Republic. Uh, those are all lectures I've heard in my time at Reed. Uh, the other three hours of class time of those six hours are spent in discussion groups, which at Reed we call conferences. And each one of those conferences is led by one of the faculty members teaching in the course. So in these, uh, these breakout sessions, students talk about lectures, they talk about the readings, and they also write seven papers over the course of the academic year. So it's a fairly intensive course. But believe it or not, it used to be even more intensive because when it was first organized in 1943, those discussion sections met five days a week instead of three. And the syllabus began, and this is back in 43, with Babylon and Egypt, and then charged through ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the medieval church and monarchy in Europe, the Renaissance, the Reformation, commercial revolution, parliamentarianism, 17th century, the state and society then, um, science arising in the 18th century and social philosophy. So it was a massive syllabus in terms of its historical range. So it was about as, as broad as you can get in a course. I took a similar sequence at Davidson College. And in fact, it was a four semester sequence there because that made it more manageable yes. to get through that whole time period. Yeah, exactly. And even it's, it's, I think one could hardly even call it a time period. It's just this historical sprawl. Um, and so 
over the decades, the course evolved as sort of most long lasting core courses do. Um, and sometimes it would take a more limited and at other times it would take a more expansive view of history, sometimes focusing only on the ancient world, sometimes veering into the modern world. And in the 80s, um, I think it was, that it was divided into a few cluster courses. So a few professors taught different sort of topics. Um, and that lasted for about a decade before the course was reunified in the 90s. So when I arrived at Reed, which was five years ago, we started with Gilgamesh and ended with Apuleius, um, the Golden Ass. And currently, we're still beginning with Gilgamesh, and now we're ending with Ray Ellison. So this is all to say the course changes constantly in terms of its content. Um, regardless of those changes, though, I think the goals have remained roughly the same um, since 1943, which are to introduce students to the various humanistic disciplines that they can study at Reed, to teach students to think and write critically and with care, and to teach them to ask questions about the way in which culture shapes the individual and vice versa. Or at least those are my goals for my students, right? Every professor has their own sort of set of desired outcomes. But I think um, open-mindedness and critical thinking are something that we all share. So given the controversies around the course, there have been discussions now at Reed on what to do with students who feel like they are marginalized on the basis of, of their identities. Tell me a bit about what kind of shape those discussions have had. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um at an internal level, at least, those discussions have been ongoing and constant. I think lately, and this doesn't just have to do with Hume, I think this has to do with Reed in general, is that the discussion has um, started to focus on questions of inclusion, of how can we help students, new students arriving at Reed, um, regardless of what majors they plan on taking, regardless of sort of which classes they feel more comfortable in? Um, how can we help students feel that they belong? Um, and I think that's almost a way of addressing something that is now, I think, beginning to become a common part of the discussions around academia and its structures um, and its strengths and its weaknesses, which is imposter syndrome. How can we help students sort of battle that? Um, or even better, I think, idealistically, right? how can we get rid of imposter syndrome altogether? Um, I, I don't know how realistic that really is as a goal. I think it's sort of human nature um, in, in many ways to just constantly be questioning yourself, at least if you're w aware and you have a good sense of yourself in the world and what you could do and what you are doing, you're usually going to feel you could be doing better. Um, and so for me, I'm a third generation PhD with, you know, sort of degrees with three different sets of degrees. I've always done well in school. Um, and even I never quite feel that I am good enough, um, that, that I really sort of belong. Yeah, well, there's a lot of pressure in general, I think, in American life to to monitor the impression you're making on others. And some data I've seen show that that has been increasing in the last 40 to 50 years. So cell phones with cameras embedded in them and you know, the selfie-taking culture, that certainly hasn't helped. So I think we're just more aware that we are constantly making impressions on other people and, and maybe yeah, in high-pressure atmospheres like... Uh, academia, you're, you're likely to have almost no one who doesn't have imposter syndrome at some point. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the thing. It's sort of one way to deal with that is to say, how can we get rid of it? I think another way to do that is sort of say, well, this is normal. Um, this is a way of being in the world. This is a way of being a political animal, for better or for worse. Um, this is, as you said, sort of especially because of social media, um, we are more networked now in some ways than we used to be. And so, whereas maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, if I'd been in the position I am now, I wouldn't know, sort of, not easily at least, how many of my colleagues at other universities were publishing articles or at what rate they were publishing and things like that. And now because people have the opportunity to, I think rightly, to self-promote and to celebrate their successes, that also sort of puts us in contact comparatively with those successes. And we keep questioning ourselves and judging ourselves and measuring ourselves um, in relation to those successes of other people. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. So the discussions around identity and around inclusion, uh, have those been focused uh, primarily on race, gender, and sexual orientation and how those identities, is, there's essentially what I'm saying is, is there an assumption that those identities, those identities of race, gender, and sexual orientation are somehow more central than others? Um, I think it read those together with um, low socioeconomic status or first generation student status uh, have been foregrounded or emphasized. But I find it striking that you're talking about identities, which I think is important, because we all do have these sort of multiple identities that combine in different ways to create sort of the unique animal that each one of us is. The way it tends to be talked about at least on Reed's campus though, or at least the way I, I tend to hear it spoken about is identity, singular, right? Um, what student with this identity or that identity, um, how can we help that student with that identity feel like they belong at Reed? And I think the answer is in part to, to avoid speaking about it in the singular and to speak about it in the plural, to emphasize that fact that we all have different identities, different sort of um, expertises of being, I guess maybe is one way to think about that, um, different experiences that we bring to the table and that those needn't be hierarchized, that some of those might be easily visible so that I can look at somebody's skin color and say, oh, you're that identity, or I can look at somebody's gender presentation and say, oh, you're probably that identity. Um, I think those are, those. what they ultimately end up doing is that they create these hierarchies of which identities are more or less oppressed, which ones are more or less valuable, which ones are more or less included. And instead, if we move away from that focus on singular identity to thinking about the plural identities that every person has, we can start seeing them each as individuals instead of as part of a group. Um, I think the flip side to that, maybe ironically, maybe paradoxically, is that the way in which, or one of the ways in which we can address this question of belonging, of how we develop senses of belonging in our students, is to foreground one identity, which is one that I don't think gets raised that often in discussion, um, at least not in terms of what we've heard, what faculty have heard from the, the student services side of things. Um, this is an identity that I haven't heard mentioned, and that is the identity of student, the identity of learner. And I think were we to focus or foreground that identity, 
um, we could get a lot of good work done in terms of making students belong, uh, making students feel like they belong and, and affirming that belonging in a certain place or in a certain community. Um, I think by virtue of having multiple identities in different contexts, in different rooms, in different spaces with different people, we foreground different identities. I think when you've chosen to go to college, when you've chosen to pursue a degree, at least when you're in the classroom, you're choosing to foreground the identity of learner. And I think if we can put an emphasis on that and say, everybody who's in this room has said that they have something to learn about the world, has said that there is some kind of gap in their knowledge or their experience that they want to fill, that there are answers that they are looking for, that there are questions they want to learn how to ask. I think if we foreground that posture, um, that way of being in the world, that could do a lot to unify students, to make them feel like they belong. And then in turn, once that's established, once you have that canvas, um, that identitarian canvas, if you will, then you can practice things like heterodoxy. You can practice and express difference um, in a way that feels not explicitly threatening, unsettling maybe. It's always sort of unsettling to expand your view of the world because it sort of reorients you in it, right? Um, right. Well, what you don't want to foster is an adversarial relationship unless that's absolutely necessary. Yes. And when you do get people locked into this idea of, of identities, it's it's very likely that that's what you're going to foster. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Identities tend to, and this is one of the things we talk about in Hume, how are communities formed? How are identities established? How are they expressed? And it's usually in terms of us, not them, right? That right. there is some kind of difference that, that you set up, a binary that you set up by virtue, um, by virtue of which you can then say, um, I am American and not European, or I am an English speaker and not a Chinese speaker or something like that, right? Um, and so I think by by shifting that a little bit to what is our shared identity in this room, right? Not against one another, but what have we all, by virtue of choosing to be an us, um, what does what are what is that us? What is it constituted of? What are its characteristics? What are its shared experiences? And by talking about very distinct identities, you're setting up a situation where there's just a higher probability that there's going to be an adversarial relationship. Yeah, well, by virtue of talking about identity, you're already, you know, as we said, you're you're establishing a difference from another person or from another group of people in order to assert X or Y or Z identity, right? And so, which is essentially setting up the two groups of people or the two individuals in an adversarial posture, because you're focusing on difference in, I think, a binary way, Um at least that that's often the way in which it gets practiced, right? You are either of color or you're not of color. You are either of a sort of minority gender or you are not. Um, and so that sets up this adversarial relationship and also I think contributes to the sense of one person or one group being the in-group and the other group being the out-group which sort of needs to be incorporated and needs to be brought in as opposed to always already essentially being part of a larger group identity. Right. And then I think it also makes the outgroup, so to speak, feel like they're a commodity and they've been brought into campus to, to fill the diversity quota. When I was an undergrad at Davidson College, um, I was really grateful for the scholarship I got there and I had excellent professors. 
In fact, I had one professor named Zimmerman. He was a Reed College professor and then became a Humes College professor at Davidson. But uh, one disadvantage of being an international student there was at times you felt like you were a commodity that had been brought to campus so that instead of being 99% white, it was something like 91% white. Yes, exactly. It's much better that way, right? Uh, and I had, I've had, well, I don't know that it would be a similar experience, but I was, it might be an analogous experience. I went to Florida State as an undergraduate, and um, my scholarship was also sort of a special scholarship, but it was a special scholarship for several thousand students because it was based on um, the national um, Hispanic scholar sort of um, ranking that you get from taking the PSAT. And so my floor of my dorm was in large part, it was an honors dorm and it was Hispanic students, some visible, some not visible, sort of some who were a quarter and had no sign of visible Hispanicity in either their names or or anywhere else. And Hispanic was the term that they were using then, right? Obviously, now we think about sort of um, Latino and Latina identity. Um, but they were from Texas, they were from Florida, they were from California, um, sort of a concentration of people from these states um, being and I'm not sure what the motive was, and that would be something I'd be curious about, what the motive was for funding this to the degree it was funded at Florida State, to the degree it was funded by the university. Was it meant to, rather than sort of diversify the institution just for the sake of diversity on its own, was it meant to create um, a sort of fair representation or an accurate representation of the ethnic makeup of the state of Florida? Was it an effort to sort of create balance in that way, um, to create equity in that way? I don't really know. Um, but there were so many of us that I didn't feel tokenized in a way that I think I would end up feeling tokenized at a much smaller institution where you are sort of one of maybe 20 or 30 right. or 40. Right. Right. And, and not only tokenized, but potentially sort of, I think that can be a way of raising questions about imposter syndrome. Do I really belong here or have I been brought in to fill certain numbers to make the optics better? Um, and that's something that I think about as a faculty member too, right? Was I hired as part of a diversity initiative or was my hiring the result of an open search that turned out the way it did because I was the best qualified for this particular job? Um, as we all know, sort of higher ed faculty searches are in some part qualification and some part luck. And in some part, I think sometimes there's a little bit of administrative cynicism right. at work. Um, and all I can say, speaking from this sort of ab hominem of, from my own perspective is that I am really, really, really glad that my hiring was the result of an open search that I know that it wasn't sort of, they were looking for somebody of X identity to fill a post, but they were looking for a good teacher and a good scholar of what it is I do. Um, and that I got that job. And that might be, again, I think a sort of optimistic or idealistic version of, of diversity practices in hiring um, and that they've created incredible benefits and they have done incredible work over the decades to create a more representative faculty population to create a more representative student population, um, one that mirrors 
or comes closer to mirroring um, or tries to get there, right, in terms of its relationship to the general population. Um, but I do constantly wonder, sort of, if I knew that only people of color had been invited for my position, um, which is a position that has nothing to do with race or ethnicity, um, how would I feel about my own work? How would I feel about my own uh, about confidence in my work, both as a teacher and as a scholar. Yeah, I, I came from a department, at least where I did my PhD, where they did have diversity hires, and I don't know how those people felt. I mean, the academic job market is so competitive. I'm sure yeah. you feel glad just to have found something, but at the same time, you do feel like you weren't hired on an open search. I don't know what that's like. So, Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. So when it comes to feelings of exclusion, what do you do if a student comes to you and says they feel like they don't belong or they feel like they're excluded at Reed or in the Hume's course? That's a really great question. Um, For me, I usually try to provide context for that student um, rather than calling attention to or rather than sort of asking them questions about their own sort of frame of mind and those ideas, which I'm not really, you know, I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't really, um, other than sort of based on my own experience, I'm not really sure. And my empathy, um, I'm not really sure how to deal with those things. And so what I try to do rather than focus on, um, telling them how they should feel about X or Y or Z situation, I try to turn the attention to, again, that shared experience in the classroom to the fact that, believe it or not, many of your classmates are feeling the same way. Believe it or not, there are people also struggling all around you, which isn't to say that your struggle doesn't matter, but it's to say that it's okay to struggle and that it's normal to struggle and that it's normal to feel sort of displaced and uncertain of where you belong in the world. Especially, I think, if you're taking a course like Hume on 10, because it is exposing you to things, to ways of thought, to other people's experiences, to cultures that you haven't necessarily thought of before. And by virtue of doing that, it is expanding your view of the world. And when your view gets expanded, your perspective necessarily shifts. You necessarily are in a different position relative to the horizon than you were five minutes before you read that text, 30 seconds before you had that idea. And that is fundamentally destabilizing. That raises questions about who we are and whether we belong. And so again, I try to focus on the fact that it's okay to not know. And the fact that it's okay to be somebody not knowing aloud in a space. Um, I think if a student comes to me with um, evidence of discriminatory experiences, that I will absolutely sort of try to address. And I have in classes where I have seen that arise, where people have, say, um, dismissed a religious point of view in reading the Bible or something like that as sort of, um, oh, how could they possibly, haha, like these crazy fanatics, right? Um, tried to reframe it instead of, well, let's think seriously about the role religion plays in practice in our day-to-day lives, regardless of whether or not we believe in it. The role in which um, the role of religion has taken in shaping our sort of political structures, uh, the ways in which it has a very real and very serious impact, not only on us, but on other people who maybe also do not believe in God, but who are nonetheless surrounded by or living in communities that are shaped by um, 
thinking that is fundamentally religious. And so I try to, when that happens, rather than say, you shouldn't say that, or you can't say that, to instead say, you need to, we need to take this seriously. And these are the reasons why. And this is why that is a responsible way in which to encounter difference, to encounter things that are foreign or strange to us, um, as opposed to uh, sort of taking a posture that constantly distances and alienates those things from us. Um, and it's I, I feel like I'm talking in contradictions because on the one hand, we shouldn't look at people who are different from us and only try to find similarities. On the other hand, awareness of those similarities makes a, and I hate to use this phrase, a safe space or a, a sort of a space from which we can comfortably and openly think about differences. Once we have figured out what we have in common, we can sort of expand from there and point to those differences also while maintaining a connection with one another in the classroom or while maintaining a connection with our objects of study. I teach a course on happiness at the moment. And one of the nice things about teaching that is I can draw as much as I want from any discipline. So I can draw from history and talk about, in a way, one thing that unites all of us is that really, regardless of where you're from, about 500 years ago, your ancestors were living in a small village in a community. It was a pre-capitalist system. So we all have similar roots. All of our societies are still dealing with the fact that the world has been shaken up by the Industrial Revolution and capitalism and globalization. And regardless of where you are, you are slightly confused by all of these things. And I also talked to them about how in some fields, there really are incentives only to talk about what people don't have in common. So if you look at anthropology, for example, there's a fascinating anthropologist named Alan Fisk, but almost all of his um, publications and his contributions have been in psychology, or at least appreciated within psychology. In anthropology itself, he's a bit of a pariah because he mostly talks about what people have in common around the world. So I, I mm. try to draw attention to the fact that when students are studying in a particular discipline, they have to be aware of the fact that that discipline was shaped by incentives that they don't see. Yes, exactly. And constantly calling attention to not only the sort of different factors that shaped each of our disciplines, but also the different biases that each disciplines bring to bear on their objects of study. Because you can have two different perspectives, two different disciplinary perspectives looking at the same object, and they'll look at it in very different ways. Um, and I think that's something to constantly um, draw attention to and foreground, especially as students are first encountering these disciplines, um, that they need to understand them as constructions and ways in which we sort of decide to see the world. Well, I think that's a good place to, to wrap up. Any final thoughts? Well, I have a question for you, which is, what is it like to teach a course on happiness in America in 2018? Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know that that's a pertinent question, but I'm really, really curious. Uh, you know, there was one semester when I taught it. It was actually the, the semester of fall 2016 when I talked quite deliberately about politics and about understanding on a global scale why in every country you go to there are some conservatives and some liberals and how to understand the difference between them. But then I also talk about the particularities of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party and how the Republican Party has really changed substantially thanks to Newt Gingrich and the succession of leaders in that party. So you can't really understand America just through the lens of conservative versus liberal. And I talk about how there may be other countries where the, the liberal party has become the more radical party, the countries where 
both parties are are quite radical. So I I don't try to stigmatize conservatives in any way. I do point out there's there's that sort of diversity, but um. I spend a lot of time talking about things that have happened on a larger scale too. So I talk about economics and how there's this divergence now where for the last 40 to 50 years, people in the middle and lower percentiles of the income distribution haven't really experienced much growth. So I talk about larger scale issues rather than just things that are relevant this decade. And then I go back to much wider timescales and talk about how humans have a sense of community and sometimes people can have a lot of money but still not feel community because those draw on different parts of our brain. I'm actually drawing to some degree on Alan Fisk's research, someone mm. I just mentioned. Um, but it's a, I mean, I feel very fortunate to teach this course because I can draw from every social science and philosophy and religion as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. I was, I was also thinking about sort of the rhetoric of happiness and where that gets expressed on the political spectrum in 2018 in America, as opposed to, say, the rhetoric of safety, um, or the different ways in which those different ideas get deployed in different moments by different political um, sort of interests. Uh, but yeah, that was just a personal curiosity on my part. Yeah, well, I did talk to them about self-compassion. There's a scholar named Kristen Neff who's done a lot of work on self-compassion, which is an idea she drew from Buddhism. And one component is common humanity. So when you feel like you've been struck by something really extraordinary in terms of bad fate, uh, you can remind yourself, if you distance yourself a little bit, that what you're facing is probably something that everyone has faced. It's probably not unique, even though in the moment you might be tempted to think that you have been uniquely cursed with, with whatever it is. It's a unique instance of a very common sort of feeling, right? yeah. or a very common conflict. Yeah, um, I think that's a nice way of framing it again, of sort of um, thinking in terms of commonality while at the same time um, having that then become a way in which you can examine or think about the sort of um, particulars, the, the, the particulars of that instance, the differences, the distinctions of that instance of commonality. Right. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you again for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. In today's show notes, you'll be able to find a link to the text of Lucia's lecture on the relevance of the humanities course at Reed, and a few other relevant articles. You can follow Lucia on Twitter. Her handle is LuciaScans, that's L-U-C-I-A-S-C-A-N-S. Coming up, we'll have a Thanksgiving episode with guest hosts Deb Mashek and Richard Davies, interviewing author A.J. Jacobs. And in late November, there'll be an episode featuring Tanya Reynolds, social psychologist at the Kinsey Institute for Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook. Mm -hmm.